Hello everyone and welcome to the BAFTA Masterclass. We have with us... I'm Ellie Brewer. I'm a writer. I developed the original story of Tracy Beaker for the BBC and then they got me back in to when they wanted to bring Danny back and do Tracy Beaker Returns. So I helped develop that as well and worked on the dumping ground. Hi, I'm Connor, Connor Byrne and I am an actor. I played Mike in the original series of the story of Tracy Beaker 13 years ago and then I came back and did Tracy Beaker Returns and I still play Mike <laughs> in uh, the dumping ground. And I'm Liz Steele, executive producer for CBC Drama, um, a newcomer to these ranks, I have to say, and I've been involved in Series 2 of The Dumping Ground and Series 3, which is currently filming. Going right back to the beginning, I want to start with Ellie. You were involved, as you said, uh, in bringing the story of Tracy Beaker to the screen. Can you tell us a little about the process of the initial adaptation of Jacqueline Wilson's fine heroine? Well... A lady called Kaz Lester handed me this book and said, what would you do with that? And she did that because a lady called Sue Knott had discovered this book and thought that it would be something that BBC, CBBC audience, uh, although CBC didn't exist in those days, would like. So uh, I hadn't read any Jacqueline Wilson, so I went through it. And it's actually it's a really interesting book because it's pretty much a stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. There's no chapters. So it was a question of deciding what bits to take out and what to keep and who, what characters to have. Because in the book, Mike is mentioned just, I think, as a guy Tracy plays a trick on because she puts custard in his wellies. <laughs> so it was sort of taking elements. I took as many stories and characters from the book as I could. Then the other thing was that Nick Sharrett does all these wonderful illustrations and he's very much associated with Jacqueline because he tends to illustrate all her book covers. So we knew we wanted some animation in the in the episode so I said well and it wasn't rocket science anyone would have come up with this why don't we get Nick to animate his stuff which is what we did so it was really about keeping uh, like there's a there's a I probably won't be able to find it there's a a illustration in here of all the kids in the dumping ground that might be it I probably can't see it from here but it was just a question of sort of picking out ones and then choosing and then building a world around Tracy and just trying to keep it as faithful to what Jacqueline had done as possible was the Nick Sharrett decision was that taken prior to scripting during scripting it was something I discussed with Elaine Sperber who was then um, head of drama I think her title was and so and Kaz and it was just well you know we wanted there was things you couldn't show in live action using Mm -hmm. kids which came out of Tracy's imagination so it seemed to make sense to animate and so then we thought well if you are you've got to use Nick and so luckily he was up for it and so that's how that came about but that was before the scripting process I think it's it was the year 2000 it's quite a long time (laughs) and so the brand was born yeah and then after a five-year gap uh, Tracy Beaker was brought back as a young adult and that won a BAFTA in the first season of Tracy Beaker Returns Liz what was behind the BBC's decision to bring back the Beaker brand well, I think it proved itself to be so overwhelmingly popular, even with the countless repeats that's on the channel. The enthusiasm for the show never seems to dim or wane. It always performs extremely well. There's obviously an appetite for it continuously. And so we thought, well, why not bring it back? And obviously, bringing Tracy Beaker back was unthinkable without Tracy Beaker, mm-hmm. who was synonymous with Danny Harmer. Um, and so the creative decision was made, well, how do we incorporate Tracy Beaker as an adult um, within the, the care home world of our junior characters. So Ellie, again, you were involved with uh, Tracy Beaker Returns. And what were the challenges for you of reinventing Tracy 
as a young adult and what did you decide to retain from the original and what did you feel needed um, to be fresh? We kept Tracy. <laughs> and uh, no, it, was, it wasn't, there was lots of debate about how to do it and how to place her and who to bring back because you wanted to, to have had some success for the audience. Because, and Jacqueline was very keen that she had had some success as a writer, but it was to be realistic. Mm-hmm. So, then, so we looked at ways that we could do that. Um, it was also, because I worked with Ben Ward on this as well, because I, I'd got him in to help. So he was part of that development team with the BBC. And in the end, after, I mean, I started to read my. My meeting notes on this and then just gave up because I just thought this is nuts I'll just tell you what I remember but the thing is that a lot of um, young people who've worked in care often go back to work in care homes so we felt that that would be a very plausible thing for her mm-hmm. to do um, so we had Tracy working at the dumping ground because that felt right and then we could focus because you you don't want her to still be the lippy kid that she had been you know back in the day but equally you wanted that feistiness and we felt that by putting her with other care kids then taking on the older sister role more that that we could achieve that and then it was who to put around her so we talked about who to bring back and Mm. my money was on this gentleman here um because mike in the show had the best relationship with with tracy Mm. and he was very much like a father figure to her so that just felt like a really good grounding for it all so, Connor, uh, yourself and Danny Harmer were the only characters from that original series to come back. And what was it that enticed you to return to the show and how did you feel that your character had developed? They made me an offer I couldn't refuse. <laughs> no, that's not true. It's the BBC, so that wasn't going to happen. Um, uh, how did they entice me back? Well, I'll go back a bit. The, sh- the original show, the story of Tracy Beaker, was about a child who'd been abandoned and how she coped with her imagination particularly, but also with this extraordinary spirit that she had in her. So she goes to stay at this care home, she meets the people that she meets, but she also meets this man who she has a relationship with her. And at the end of the first series, Mike has to go. Mike leaves. Mm -hmm. So she's abandoned again. So that's kind of the story. So I only ever did one series of that show. I came back for series five to just kind of finish the circle, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't for the whole series. So I didn't actually do that much of it. So I was intrigued by him. He was a lovely idiot. He was a lovely, soft, kind (laughs) fool. But uh, So he was nice to play. And it was... I had really enjoyed working with kids. When they finished The Dumping Ground, or the the Tracy Beaker, the story of Tracy Beaker, it was mooted that a show called The Dumping Ground might happen. I was asked if I was interested, and Jacqueline, very wisely, at that point, said, no, I don't want this to happen. She didn't want to dilute her product. So there was always a possibility that something might come up. Then I had a meeting with Joe Ward <clears throat> about three, three years later uh, to, to discuss the, the Tracy Beaker returns to see if I was interested in it. I was interested in how they were going to uh, uh, make it more uh, applicable. Mm-hmm. The, the original series was fantastic, but it, it, beca- it, 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 there was a lot of slapstick. There was a, I wanted to know if they were going to get a bit meatier, a bit more... Uh, you know, th- This show has dealt with some extraordinary issues and, and to, to be able to do that at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon is an incredible thing. So that's really kind of what brought me back was the idea of, hey, this is something special. This is something really special. And I was right. <laughs> and so it goes on. And after ten years of first playing the role, Danny felt that it was time to move on. So, Ellie, did you feel that this was a, a natural evolution or did it force you to make difficult creative decisions we had to think long and hard about whether it could work and whether the audience would come with us. The 
gut feeling and the hope was that they would because we had such a strong set of young people characters in the in the show personally then I had to think about is this something I want to do because it's a huge risk Mm -hmm. and it's not that I don't like risk but we'd done three really solid series of Tracy Beaker Returns which I was really proud of so I remember having long discussions with our then script editor Jonathan Wolfman about okay do we just go okay that's a great trilogy let's just all go home and I just felt I wasn't quite finished with those characters Mm -hmm. so we took it on and thankfully you know it paid off and the audience did come with us I mean you just shift the focus slightly because in, in Tracy Beaker Returns, in any writing meeting, you know, lots of, we'd all, all the writers would sit down and people would be throwing out ideas and then one of us, me, the producer or the scriptwriter, would always be going, yeah, but where's Tracy in this? Because you have to have Tracy front mm-hmm. and centre because that's the show. But when she's gone, then what that did, it freed up the storytelling process mm-hmm. because then you're focusing purely on the child, you're not putting it through another filter. But we, we drove ourselves mad writing that final script because... We kept throwing the storylines away. <laughs> and uh, so and then it got to a stage where me and the script editor, Jonathan, we, we were happy with it, but Gina Cronkart, then producer, was, no, no, we're not there yet. And I was like, oh, OK. Because like, if she said that wasn't, that's good enough for me, let's go back and try again. And eventually we got it, because the, actually the core of it, we realised the core of the story was that Tracy was saying goodbye to Mike. So I think that was part of what was so emotional. And when you look at some of those scenes, you can see the whole cast are in tears, and it's very, you know, it's very genuine. So, but we worked hard for that. <laughs> so, yeah. You earned those tears. Oh, yeah. Um, so now we're moving on in the history uh, of the brand, and we're going to delve deeper into the world of the dumping ground and what it represents. Now, it's fair to say that it's, the show isn't a like-for-like uh, representation of a care home. So... I'd like to ask the panel, how do you think um, that having a sense of heightened reality works for your audience, Liz? Well, I think it's true to say it is not an accurate or fair depiction of what it's like to be in care. I mean, we are dealing with an audience of 6 to 12s. Um, I think if you're looking for an accurate depiction, you might watch Samantha Morton's um, Channel 4 film she did, which was searingly honest and in the sort of more kitchen sink realm. With our audience, we need the heightened reality and we positively push for the environment of the dumping ground to be a warm, safe, welcoming environment, colourful as well and vibrant, so that we can then tell the stories which do have quite hard emotional truths at the centre of them that we put our characters through and that we are able, because of that heightened reality, to also tackle issues, as Connor's alluded to, which is surprising for the transmission slot that we have on CBBC. And what about you, Ellie? Do you think that that's uh, uh, an attractive feature of the show for your for your audience? Yes, I, th- I think so, because it, I, I think they trust us to tell stories that you don't see that often on TV for that age group, but with an, a real edge of reality. Like, one of the things, because as Connor was alluding to, the, the original story of Tracy Beaker, the series had got quite broad by the end of its run. And with, with Tracy Beaker Returns and the Dumping Ground, we wanted to take it back to sort of something more realistic. So that's what we do, tell issue-based stories, but we never take sides. And so you let the audience make up their own minds. You just give them all sides of the argument. Because there's about 12 young people in the home. You, you get a group of any 12 people, they're going to have different opinions about mm. stuff. So that's what we try to focus. So you never give them the answer, but you set up the, the dilemma. And over the, the, the years as the show has evolved has the style and tone of the show evolved alongside 
don't. Th- I mean, I think it's probably. Re- I think it's remained think pretty it true mm. to, to think, where think, we wanted it to be when yeah. we when we kicked off the new mm. version. I think it's changed um, for the better. It's got. It, you know. Mm. I fell over a lot. I got a lot of tomatoes thrown in my face. It doesn't happen quite so much anymore. Uh, it still happens. The, the writing just seems to get better and better. It's very difficult to deal with re- quite hard, hard issues and get the kids to watch it and enjoy it and to understand it. So I, th- I think it's deepened. I think it's got even better. I mean, to put it in context, some of the issues that have been at the heart of stories over the past couple of years, certainly, have included things like uh, racism, mental health homelessness, what it's like to leave the care system at 16. And I think this year we're tackling domestic abuse and immigration stories. So they're quite punchy subject matters. Um, And I think they're subject matters that, for the most part of the audience, they actually won't have encountered before as a a theme or idea or concept. Um, And so we're actually doing something which has to be entertaining but has obviously got to have a great emotional truth to it. And as Ellie says, you know, you present both sides of the argument. So often, you know, we do have some of our characters who are kind of flawed and damaged by their very nature, by being in care and their backgrounds, can take the most politically incorrect view and basically say what the man in the street might be saying. But it's always countered by someone else who says, well, actually, I don't agree, and this is why. And always at the heart of it is the, is the children's emotion, which always keeps it grounded yes. from being so relevant, topical, etc. Um, I understand that there's a consensus that you don't do stories that can't be told elsewhere so that everything that you decide to play um, has to resonate exclusively with the characters and the situations uh, in, the, in the dumping ground. How did you come to embark on the journey of telling the Alice in Wonderland story in the dumping ground? Well, because we knew we had a Christmas special, but Mm. we weren't having Santa and snow. So then Liz and I were talking and trying to come up with something that would be really different. Then I was given permission to go as bonkers as I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) And then we suddenly thought, oh, Alice in Wonderland would be so gorgeous and Jodie would make the perfect Alice, but you have to then make a dumping ground story. So um, I came up with the idea that that, um, Jodie had two older brothers who one of... The oldest brother was used to fence stuff and nick things. And the police wanted her to testify against him. Mm-hmm. So the mother was very, very opposed. But the, her younger brother was for it because, it, not at first, but he thought he could then change all their lives. If the brother got put in prison, that would free them up. They could then have a new life. So that her dilemma was just going all through Wonderland and meeting all the characters, mm-hmm. um, but trying to work out what's the right thing to do. So it was really that process of just talking... We just kept talking it through. And also, it was relevant for Jodie as a character because, you know, it could just have been any kind of um, dilemma encountered in any drama, which is Mm. family loyalty. Do you snitch on your brother or not and do you send him to prison? But obviously, as Ellie says, if he went to prison, it could release his grip on the family Mm -hmm. and it could actually mean that Jodie, in time, could actually leave care Mm. and go back to her mother and and older brother, um, which for her is a massive attraction and would change the rest of her childhood life. So... Mm. It's, it's those kind of dilemmas that, that, we, that we play with. But I think that's a very good example of how it fundamentally hits um, characters in care and how it portrays that. There are others which basically deal with the day-to-day life and reality of being in care. And this is just very sort of simplistic, but one episode we did last year, which um, is about essentially two groups within the family, within the house, want to watch a different television programme. There's one television, 12, 13 kids, 
do you watch England play football? It's a moot question these days, but do you watch an England football <laughs> game or do you watch the final of a reality show? Basically, as a caper, but at the very, very basic level, it's in care, you don't have many resources, what do you do in those situations? So it can go from the sort of comedic examples like that to something much, much more fundamental and yeah. emotional like the Jodie story. And Connor, how was it? Going oh. bonkers and balmy when the Alice in Wonderland... Oh, into the valley of death, rolled the 300. Mm-hmm. I had to be committed. This is the big thing. We read the script. I, I could see the kids reading the script going, we're not. We're not. Well, we are. Um, and in order to get the, the level of uh, commitment, you had to say to them, you know, if we, write, if we literally do this as, with as much commitment as we possibly can, we can pull this off. And I think we did. I think we did. It was an incredibly d- difficult... I was green for, for a week. It was very uncomfortable. He was a frog. Can uh, we just add that in? Uh, <laughs> um, not with envy. Uh, yeah, it was very difficult. It was a difficult thing, but the costumes were... Ext- everything about it was extraordinary. It was a wonderful um, uh, episode to be in and to, and to, to watch. But everyone really threw themselves into it because I wanted it to look like... the uh, Is it Tenniel, the guy that illustrates the, the old mm-hmm. Alice in Wonderland? And I, so I was really specific. I wanted it to look like that. And they just did the most fantastic job, didn't they? costume people and and so you know everybody was really up for it and i you know it just was really nice that they you know i had a blast writing it so that was we had a good time commitment yeah you have to you have to actually commit to it and their kids really did they bought into it hook line and sinker <laughs> i'm sure it created some um, memorable moments did it please you? yes Yes, watching people sitting in Humpty Dumpty costumes for hours and hours and hours while they sweat in the sunshine is... And the walrus and the carpet. Yes, the walrus and the carpet too. <laughs> Back to you now, Connor, who we've uh, christened as the touchstone of all of the, the series. Can you tell us a little bit about the specifics of working with such a young cast and the challenges that that yeah. creates? Well, the age groups <clears throat> span quite a bit, so you can have from six to... To I think a coach is nineteen, uh, so you have very different needs to, full, to, to to care care needs and everything else. Start with the technical bits and pieces. The uh, the cast who've been around for a while are very adept. They've probably had more television time or more screen time than most adults will ever get in their lives. But there's two new characters come in this week, and they've never been in a television uh, studio. They've never filmed anything. They don't know what a mark is. They don't know what an eye line is. So you've got this extreme. Uh, gap technically of what they're capable of. And you have to marry all that together. So that involves quite a group, not direction, the director's always in charge, but there's a group that sort of, you know, that's a mark. So there's a, there's a minding. It's like a big, like a big gang. The, the older kids mind the smaller kids. Technically, the other thing is uh, the kids' hours are quite restrictive, and as they should be. The younger kids can only be on set for a particular amount of time. The older kids have to be, they also have to do, they have to be chaperoned all the time. And they have to, to go to school. They have to go to school while school is in. They have to spend enough time in the classes. So all those things weigh on the organisational mm-hmm. uh, um, things, like the, what the first ADs have to do, the, the, how they schedule things and everything else. Also how you shoot something. If young Philip, who plays Harry, is in a shot and he has to go and have a cup of tea, then you shoot him out of it. So technically, you shoot one side that he's in, then you turn around and you shoot the other side because then he's gone. I've often played to a room with nine children in it 
with not a child in front of me because <laughs> they've all gone home. <laughs> so that, technically there's a lot of things that are involved. So their, their ages, how you schedule it, how much they know, uh, how you have to mind them. You know, their relationship with, with the director is really important. Their, their relationship with the director of photography is really important. Well, the director of fo- photography recently used to say to one of the, one of the lads, he used to say, no, bad dog, no biscuit. You didn't hit your mark. Come on, let's do it again. You know, you play with them. It's, it's got to be fun. If it's not fun, they're not going to want to do it. You know, there's a discipline. There's all those kinds of things. You, you try and engender best practice with them. But, you know, they're kids. They still wander, wander off in their heads half the time. So that, that's part of it. Um, the next thing is, is, is they bring different talents. They, they're really surprising in what they can do, what they can achieve, and what, how, how they focus. One other thing about, about work with the kids is... is they're people, small people, but they need to be cared for. So their pastoral care is very, very important. You have to enfranchise them. You have to, you have to help them think. You have to, they have to think that they own it. Mm. They have I, to think it's their gig, that, they, that they, 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 they're making decisions that are affecting their lives. So things like Liz, Liz did last year, which is, you know, we're, we're kind of halfway through the show, and she went around with small groups. She said, how are we doing? What are we, do, what, what, what are we doing that you don't like? What are we doing that we, that we could do better next time? What are your ideas? And taking their ideas and using them. All of a sudden, the kids are going, yeah, man, this is our gig. This is our show. Yeah, that's a fantastic thing to do. And every now and then, you just want to go, oh, yeah. <laughs> but one that, doesn't, that's, obviously. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Not when the camera's so on. One thinks that. I never, ever. And then you count to ten, obviously. Um, so... Uh, Tracy Beaker and the Dumping Ground, they've always led the field in terms of uh, screen diversity and issue-based children's drama. So I'd like to explore this in a little bit more detail now. So um, who decides what issues to tackle and is content ever restrained uh, because of editorial policy? Or if the programme has a moral responsibility for its audience, who takes those decisions? So who does decide what issues are tackled and are you ever restrained by, by policy? I, I always read around the subject. I was always reading stuff about kids in care and I'd read a few years ago about how many gay men were fostering. So I was really interested in doing a story about that. And um, we were going to do it for two of our characters and then we decided not to. And then when Noah, who plays Gus, wanted to leave, I was like, oh, yes. So then uh, we decided to do it... I was always going to do it as, a, as women, two women. So... Yeah, it came from that, and we did. It did go right up the food chain, um, which I was quite because I just remember get, getting a call from a script editor going, mm-hmm. "Oh, Joe Godwin's just read your script." I said, "Why is he reading my script?" <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. Well, you know, and actually, all credit to the BBC for letting me do it. Mm-hmm. He had one note, which was a great note, which was to give that line to Frank because I'd given it to someone else about mm-hmm. the I'm not normal. Um, and so mostly, in fact, pretty much always, when, I, when I've come up with issues that I want to tackle, we've been able to do... I remember me and Ben coming in one day and going, we've got this idea we want to throw Lily off the roof. Are we cool with this or what? And it was, yeah. And it wasn't quite, mm-hmm. yeah. But anyway, Gina was, yeah, I'll, you know, we'll sort it. And I think as long as you handle it carefully, and I mean, I did a whole episode about Johnny wanting to join the army mm-hmm. as well, which was quite a big deal in terms of issue and it's just you know it's Liz's job to go off and sort of make sure that I'm allowed to do things like that and and sometimes there was one um episode which wasn't on your watch where I wanted somebody to hit someone else with a cricket bat how you do of a 
script. And um, that wasn't allowed to happen. But Di Patrick, who's not here, who shot it for me, understood what I wanted and just got the shot I was mm-hmm. after. So there's normally a way around things. It's just you've really got to be careful that you're not... You, if you, you can't show imitative behaviour. Um, and if you do, there have to be consequences. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I just think I really like writing about the big issues, something to get your teeth into that actually you can voice things from all. I mean, that was quite a contentious mm. scene with everybody giving some really diverse views. Um, so it's, yeah, and it's that, and it's working with, there's great researcher on the show called Emma Whitaker, and she works very closely with a lot of um, people in care, young people in care. So I, I often talk with her about ideas and what, what needed. It's, it's interesting things that need covering. There's not, I just suddenly thought there's another character called Mo who I... Um, it was in I've forgotten which series last series one. he came wasn't it the first one and I'd been reading about um, unscrupulous landlords who were renting out sheds for people to live in you know putting electricity in so that I wrote that in so Mo had been living in a shed and that's where social services found him so stuff like that and so for you, for you Liz do you think that the is it the writers who bring the stories to the tables or is it the issues that come to the tables first through research or it's a, it's a combination yourself? I mean Ellie as a screenwriter is very good at thinking this is the story I want to tell and then going to the research and making sure that her story therefore has a strong foundation um, and that it's built on you know strong research um, other writers like to use research as a kicking off point and certainly Emma our researcher has um, very good connections within the fostering and adopting and the care world. Um, and we sometimes use Emma as, you know, at the start of a series, planning what are the latest themes that are prevalent um, in the care world. Is there something that we should be tapping into as an overall theme for the series? Um, or writers then think, oh, that's a great idea. And actually for series three, which we're filming at the moment, um, the idea of episodes one and two directly came from Emma's research into sort of latest trends. Um, so generally, it's, it's, we like to think it's um, an author-led process for the writers where they can come to the table with the stories that they actually want to tell. Um, we have a loose idea of, what, of which characters we want to tell stories for and what kind of tone they would occupy in terms of is it an emotional issue or is it a light-hearted caper with something poignant at the heart of it. Um, but by and large, yes, the, it's up to the writers to generate and we sort of help to guide and, and shape, but... Editorial policy-wise, I think, as, as Ellie says, as long as you take the characters on an emotional, supported journey, mm-hmm. whereby we know these characters are flawed and damaged, they're not living in a perfect world, they're not perfect, they're going to make mistakes, they're going to make wrong decisions. And I think, for the audience, they love the conflict of that and they like to see how it's going to be resolved. And we need to ba- basically tell stories that have that emotional truth at heart but are redemptive as well and show an outcome and show the kind of consequences that can happen. But we don't, but we don't always do happy endings because uh, there aren't happy endings. I mean, sometimes we do. Lots of times we don't. I just wondered about in terms of the cast, do they ever, do the issues that you tackle, does it ever raise debate and discussion amongst them? Yep. How's that, Connor? Yeah, in the green room, there's always talk about things like that. But the, the thing about it is it is a care home. So you can look at issues that m- might a- affect people more. But it's also a family. The show is about... It's a dysfunctional, sort of disparate family, but it's still a family. So you're dealing a lot with familial issues and, and the tensions between brothers and sisters and people that don't get on and all that kind of stuff. So that, that informs an, an awful lot of, the, of, of what you can do as well. But, yeah, we sit and we talk about drugs and we talk about sexual abuse and we talk about 
with the adults and with everybody else, where the makeup goes. And so mm-hmm. there's a very open, people move around in the space. But the kids, we won't bring it up, but you, you know, we sat down the other day and there was, there was, there was, there was a, a conversation about, about homosexuality and about how men deal with it and how, how women deal with it. So, but these are coming usually from, that's a bit weird, what do you think about that? So yeah, yeah, of course it does. They're pretty smart kids though. Mm-hmm. How are the issues, we've spoken about the cast, how they talk about issues and topics that are featured in the show, but how is it received by your target audience, Liz? Um, we make a point after each series goes out, and this is across the board for CBBC, to do what we call stepping out sessions, where we take an episode of a show into a local school, uh, and obviously we choose an age-appropriate year for the show. And we talk to them about um, what's on television, what are their favourite things to watch, um, and then we show them an episode. And then we basically get them to comment on what they think of the storylines, what they think of the characters, who they like, what they're affected by, and which moments made them sort of sit up and really think, you know, sit up, think, listen, and which, which they're gripped by. Um, and we took that episode, Sticks and Stones, into a local school. And it was interesting because Bailey was a new character last year, um, and we introduced him in episodes one and two, and then gave him this story later on. And as a character, he is very selfish, he's a loner, he has a chip on his shoulder, character with attitude. And the kids in the stepping out session wanted to know, they loved that story, A, because they could talk about racism and what it meant, but also they could see a a character who previously had been very chippy, Mm -hmm. brought really low by something. And for them it made the telling of the story that much more effective, because there was a character previously that was unaffected by anyone else in the care home. Um, and yet here he was, vulnerable, slightly crushed, trying to come to terms with something that he'd experienced and whether it was acceptable or whether he'd done something to provoke, to provoke that. So I have to say the kids in the session that we talked to were very impressive in terms of the grasp of the story, uh, the issues involved, um, and also the characters. And are the writing team ever involved in those stepping out sessions, Ali? Do you, what was your um, contact with the audience? Like, I haven't if been. Any? Um, <laughs> No, it is it is quite minimal. I mean, we, I did loads of stuff in the early days. Ben and I, Emma arranged the research, arranged loads of um, sessions with looked after kids, so we sort of knew what they were thinking about it. Um, but I don't, no, I don't think I have done that much with just just the audience. Mm. So you receive the feedback sort of Second through Liz, hand. through yeah. Emma. Yeah. I live with the audience. Right. Okay. I have three kids, <laughs> ten, thirteen, and sixteen, and. Uh, I was doing something, and uh, they watched that episode, and I could hear them applauding. I won because they don't think I'm a very, you know, they don't, they don't think I'm like Mike. They, they, they think I'm an idiot. I'm their dad, but that was very sweet. But I also live with the audience in terms that I live my life in London, and I'm on the streets, and I'm everywhere. And the the feedback that I get from young ladies, young mental, young young gentlemen on the street is is the best thing in the world. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for talking about that. That really made a difference. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And, of course, the story of Tracy Beaker gets replayed on CBBC as well. So the audience So they can see me with hair. We also got a lot of guilty... We used to get a lot of guilty pleasure viewers when we started Tracy Beaker Returns because so many people have grown up with story of Tracy Beaker. So then the, it really... Well, as I understand it, it skewed the age of our 
viewers because mm-hmm. they they were you see lots of stuff on Twitter about don't judge me but I'm <laughs> watching Tracy Beaker returns like yes thank you um, so it, you know they do seem to sort of they wanted to know what what Tracy was up to and sort of stay with it and when you I mean I don't meet the audience on mass but when I meet people because people don't know who I am which is fab but when when you meet people and they find out what mm-hmm. you do the feedback is then it's wonderful because because what's interesting about our audience they're not just watching it once mm-hmm. they watch it as it goes out then they watch it on iPlayer then they watch it again you know sometimes some, I remember who I was talking to you last week, but their daughter had watched something like 14 times. She'd just keep watching the episodes. Well, you know, the viewing, you've got the iPlayer figures. Well, they're, 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 yeah, they are absolutely astonishing. Yeah. But Ellie's touched on something significant, which is that the audience grows up with Tracy Beaker, the story of Tracy Beaker, Tracy Beaker Returns, but there's a fascination uh, by the audience to learn what's happened to these characters once they've left. Once mm. they've left the show, what happens to them? Um, I think that's why it's interesting that Tracy Beaker Returns, obviously helped with that fascination of seeing a, a, a child grow up into sort of young adulthood. And I think the show is very good at creating rich, iconic characters, and it's always a shame when we have to say goodbye to them mm-hmm. um, because they've been a part of the firmament. Um, yeah, well, that brings me on to, to the next point because there obviously is an inbuilt shelf life for the characters because of age. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the decisions regarding who stays, who goes, who gets introduced, when characters leave, when those iconic characters, you know, have to fly the dumping ground nest. So, Ellie, how are the exits of the, of the characters constructed, decided? Well, sometimes actors want to leave of their own accord. Sometimes we want to get rid of them. <laughs> and sometimes, I mean, just Frank, it was time that he, he, he needed to go because he was too old to be living in care. And through the last series, he'd moved out anyway, but he'd messed it up, so he'd come back. So the reason he was doing that at the end of the episode is because the episode opens on the first day of Frank's job. Mm-hmm. And Mike is saying to him, ask where the loos are, don't forget, have you got a hanky? So that's why that's a parallel of that. But with Frank, he's so loved by the audience. I mean, you want to give every character a really nice send-off because they've earned it. And the audience, you know, they're right behind them and sometimes they're losing their favourites. So with Frank, you know, he really was a much-loved character. So we really wanted to do something big for him. So we couldn't quite think what to do. And then I had an epiphany moment in my mm-hmm. bath. And I, and I uh, realised that actually for Frank, Frank and Liam had always discussed having a flat together. And I thought that the audience would really love it if Frank and Liam rode off into the sunset. So um, talking of things which get approved and not approved, we opened the episode on Frank's, uh, Frank starting work in a leisure centre. Liam comes in to fix the plumbing. Frank sees him and punches him, knocks him out, so everybody gets fired. So, A, that was great that the BBC <laughs> let me punch Frank, uh, Liam. But, um, and so the whole episode is how, you, how Frank and Liam were then reconciled and why what went on went on. And in the end, they rode off into the sunset. So, but it, again, Mike was really focal you know he was focused into that story because his relationship with frank was really important so it was how he frank had messed up big time by getting fired from the job which mike had really worked really hard to get him so frank had to get back into mike's good books so he he solved that through the episode but it is hard getting that those sort of departure episodes are really mm-hmm. difficult because you you really want to do the right thing by that character um so. And also, sometimes half an hour just isn't enough to, pay, mm. to do an exit mm. story. And I think because we decided quite early on in the planning of the series 
yeah. that it was time that Frank left, and so let's make him our series finale. That was episode 13. We were able to tell a bit of a sort of serial story with him across the series, which, which he doesn't normally do, mm. whereby he has actually left the care system at the beginning of the series. He's living independently, um, and he fails at it um, and becomes homeless. Um, and so episode 13, and so he comes back into care, into the dumping ground as a result. And in episode 13, it's all about him learning to take responsibility and to find the maturity and understand what it takes when you leave the care system to actually survive on your own. So it was a nice kind of mm. personal story arc for him across the 13 episodes. Because also, because you, you want the audience to be happy with what's happening mm-hmm. for Frank, which is why I wanted to get Liam back in. But so, you know, and so he, it was a happy ending, wasn't it, in that, yeah. in that case? But yeah, we built it right through the series, which normally we, we don't do. Also touching on the show's diversity as well, obviously the, the lad who plays Frank is a disabled actor. Um, how do you go about uh, touching on diversity? How are those decisions made? How is it cast? Well, it's obviously important for the show to reflect the contemporary world um, and to be as diverse as it can be. Um, And so we make decisions each year in terms of which new characters do we create and how are we going to cast them. But we never create a character and say, this is a diverse character that's going to experience these things to do with its diversity. Um, So I gather that with the casting of Frank, Chris Slater... Um, they found him as an actor and then said, OK, you can play Frank. Um, yes, we told because well, we told... the Sue Neen was our casting director, so we told her what we were looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and she looked for the best actor. So, But the interesting thing about Frank's character is that we never mention what's wrong with him, ever. Mm-hmm. It's not an issue. He will mention it if he's trying to get something or if he's going to do a scam. Or if it, so, And with Gus as well. In fact, with, with Gus, we did write that. Ben and I did write that because... Um, again it's never named in the the series it's just he's on the autistic spectrum but you can see that from his Mm behaviour Noah who plays him isn't like that whereas Chris is like Frank Um, but I think that's probably the only time we've done that Yeah. so it's important for us to introduce characters and not have them defined by their Mm -hmm. diversity and obviously with the Bailey story we experienced him across a number of stories before we even told a story Mm. about racism but that wasn't defining him as a character it's something that he experienced and in terms of defining the show as a brand um obviously it grew from uh, the the wonderful Jacqueline Wilson brand of the story of Tracy Beaker has evolved now to the dumping ground Liz do you think that the dumping ground now stands alone as its own individual singular brand I mean I think as as a show it's it's enormous with the viewers um in terms of the episodes themselves but at the beginning of each series, there's, there's a massive planning strategy meetings in terms of how we give as much of an immersive experience to the audience as possible, and that goes over and, over and above the actual transmitted episodes. So the interactive team have a mm-hmm. massive part to play in that. In three years, it's garnered over 100 million views on iPlayer, which is phenomenal. Um, but in terms of the website and, and the interactive capability, it's very important to support it so that the audience can engage with the characters on a very different level than just watching the show. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, Series 1 um, embarked with a multiplayer game on the website. That was developed further for Series 2. And Series 2, in conjunction with Frank's episode and the arrival of Liam, we did a series of webisodes, which were 10 three-minute um, episodes to be found on the website. Yeah. And that followed Liam's story post-care. You know, what had Liam got up to since leaving care? 
how, what were his fortunes, what was he doing. And we, we followed a little sort of snapshot of his life. And then he basically comes into the final episode um, of The Dumping Ground. So they, they ran parallel. And that was another kind of piece of content that just to sort of engage with the audience. And with Series 3, it's going even bigger in terms of the online support to the audience with uh, a new Dumping Ground game and app, um, whereby the audience can actually be the characters in the game. They can be Carmen and it'll draw on, for instance, actual stories that we tell in Series 3. So they can be Carmen experiencing that story. And they can also take the view, for instance, of a care worker or the dumping ground dog and basically see the dumping ground life from very different perspectives. So it's engaging the audience on a whole new level. And I think, coming around to answer your question, that's what makes it a brand that totally stands out on its own in terms of the experience it gives back to the audience. And what's your involvement, Ellie, in any sorts of webisodes or multi-platform I, I did, approach? I think it was in Series 1 of The Dumping Ground. I did a storyteller thing online. Uh, I came up with it. I think someone, uh, someone else wrote it. But the audience could then tell, tell stories. And with the webisodes, I worked with Liz initially to, to plan it because we wanted to get... I was... Like in order to persuade Richard Whisker back, I discovered on YouTube he could sing, and I thought, ha ha. <laughs> so we worked that into the webisodes. But then a guy called Matt Evans wrote them, did a nice job on those. So, uh, so uh, not a massive amount of input, but a bit. The original question was: yes. Does the Dumping Ground now a brand yes. on its own? I worked on all three shows, and mm-hmm. they, are, they have the soul of each. Sh- there is a, there is a core through each of them that links them, but they are three entirely different beasts. The first show was about a kid. There was about Danny being small and all that mayhem and craziness. The second one, because it was the eponymous hero, everything was channeled through her, and it was still the kids, but it was still her version of what went on, and it was all about her. Like Ellie said, when Danny decided to leave, it changed again into a completely different gear, which the audience then accepted and actually wanted more of, because there is actually more chance for these, these uh, stories and these kids to blossom. You can tell far greater stories, and you can go on telling stories, at, 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 at better and better stories. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's a richer, deeper, happier place, to, certainly to work, but, uh, but also to watch. Mm-hmm. And you said there that they're, all, they're three different beasts, but we've got some um, stats up there now. So those three different beasts uh, have been seen by 3.9 million unique kids and uh, that equates to 82% of the target audience which kind of means that it's we've taken a, an iconic character and, and made an, a, a national icon of it in my opinion finally I'd just like to ask our panel to sum up in a sentence what you think is ultimately the, the winning formula for the dumping ground <laughs> Ellie we'll start with you, no repetitions or presentation. Okay. well it, I think it's issue based stories with heart that are told in surprising ways. I think, it's about e- I think it's about ethos. When we're filming, what everybody believes in and everybody's behind it, the commitment, the writing, the people who mind us, the people who cook for us, <laughs> it's the ethos in the building, but also the ethos of the show. The kids come and watch because they think that means something. It's, it's worth something. And Liz? Um, I would say telling bold, challenging stories that don't patronise the audience, which are brought to life by a very talented and often untried young cast, and they really do bring it to life. Thank you.
Well, that's the end of our BAFTA Creative Masterclass. I'd like to thank uh, Lisa Prime and, and Siobhan Pridgen from BAFTA and Sue Knott as well from CBBC. And um, thank you, everybody, for coming to listen. So thank you very much. <laughs>